0: Place that you have left uh, exists only in one location, in in one space only, and that's in your memory and nowhere else.
1: Today, on If Passports Could Talk, we talk with Gerald Steinecker.
0: Well, I was born and raised in town called Saint Johann in Tyrol. That's near Kitzbühel, typical area, I think, that has a lot of tourism, ski area, beautiful mountains. Um, the winters are amazing there. A lot of things one can do during the winter time. And then I grew up um, not far away from there, but also in Innsbruck. So my family moved around quite a lot, but always in the Tyrol region. Tyrol is really the region that I still identify the, the most with. So I'm, I'm really uh, feel strongly as a Tyrolean. And the world is organized in Tyrol, in valleys and mountains, and uh, after the mountain, there is a new valley, and then a mountain and a valley again, and that was my world.
1: Gerald J. Steinacher is the James A. Raleigh Professor of History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His research focuses on 20th century European history with an emphasis on the Holocaust, National Socialism, Italian Fascism, and intelligence Studies.
0: I grew up in part on the farm of my grandparents on my mother's side. That was a very traditional Tyrolean or mountain people upbringing. So a lot of work on the farm in the mountains with animals, with cows and horses was a place from a different century, I feel like almost 19th century. The, the winters were really harsh because it was very cold, a lot of snow, I remember. We had only one room heated with a, with a fireplace, basically, an oven, because wood was very precious. We had to work for cutting the wood and producing the, the, the wood for, for the winter. In, in the morning, it took some time to warm up the one room in the farm to, to have a warm place, And in the evening, by 9 o'clock or so, they would stop uh, using firewood to heat the room. So it would get cold very quickly. And uh, I remember these very cold mornings, these cold nights. And then walking from the farmstead to the schoolhouse, or better, to the school bus, where the school bus uh, stopped. That was quite an adventure. Uh, Sometimes it was really tough to go through the high snow, the strong winds on a snowy winter day just to get to the school bus. And sometimes the school bus would never show up because they couldn't. There was just too much snow. They didn't get through. So it was a very idyllic in some way, but in in other ways, also a very harsh childhood uh, without the modern comfort of modern houses and electricity, you know, limited and and heating, not, not by electricity, but by firewood. Pretty isolated, that the farm was far away from the next village. Was about ten miles from the next village. I was growing up with uh, with grown-ups, not that many kids, except the ones I knew from from school. And you know, it was a lot of nature. I spent a lot of time in nature, in the mountains, in the forests, and with our animals. That was my upbringing uh, in the Tyrolean mountains.
1: Sibling rivalries and family dynamics in one household can often be intense, but being the youngest can sometimes make things easier.
0: So I have two brothers and a sister. I'm the youngest uh, by far, so I'm the Benjamin of the family. I think that also then translated in everyone looking after me. (laughs) So from my big brothers to my big sister and my mother, of course, as well, and my father, too. I think I have a very strong connection, at least that's how I feel, with all of my siblings. Um, I always felt they, they, they look out for me. Maybe they haven't always looked out for each other. So for me as the Benjamin, clearly they always look out for me.
1: For some kids in Tyrol, education extends from the classroom to the farm. Free time would quickly be filled with more adventures and exploration.
0: On the farm, I didn't have that much free time because uh, between school and uh, and work to do uh, in the on the farm, I don't remember that much free time. In the winter, especially, building uh, snow castles and snow fights and uh, snowball fights and uh, snowmans going downhill with the sleigh. And that means something that, so in Tirol, these are not little hills where, you know, baby hills where you can easily sleigh down. You go up the mountain and then it's quite a ride. So you have to know how to navigate, how to direct the sleigh. Otherwise it's too dangerous. This can be very dangerous if you have no experience and it's very steep and very curvy. That, that was something that we liked to do a lot in the winter. Well, but you know, that's why I'm saying Like I tell these stories and many people would say of my generation, yeah, what what are you talking about? because they didn't grow up in a farmhouse far away from from a village (laughs) with with people, the grandparents, who were themselves from a different generation and different world.
1: Our fairy tales and folklore can seem surreal, but the knowledge passed down in these stories can often hold valuable lessons for understanding and connecting to the world around us.
0: There was a tradition in Tyrol like a a folk tradition people were saying uh we don't understand the animals Uh, humans cannot understand the animals but the animals have a language too they talk to each other that's something we were told as children of course there is only one evening in the year when humans can hear and understand uh, what the animals are talking what they're saying and that's for christmas eve I remember at some point that I thought, okay I really want to know what they're saying, what they're talking about us, the animals on the farm what they say about us and then I sneaked very quietly into the barn where the animals uh, were living, was hiding there and very quietly uh, was hoping you know to hear them speak and was very excited about. It. but as you can imagine, uh, it did not work out. I did not understand them just like any other day. Or evening during the year, and then I was very disappointed. And and when I came back, I told the grown-ups, uh, "Yeah, that doesn't work. I didn't, I didn't understand them, and, and what's wrong?" And the grown-ups told me, "Yeah, that's probably because they noticed you're there, and that's why it didn't work." And that was a perfectly okay explanation for me. I mean, there were many such traditions because you know, to roll traditional farm life is very much coined by or was was coined. Catholic, Christian folk traditions. People were, were praying for a good harvest, for their own health, for the health of the animals, for uh, protecting the house, the homestead, against fire, and so on and so on. And there were all kinds of traditions. I remember one tradition was when there was lightning or storm, my grandparents would burn branches, uh, which were blessed by the local priest. Uh, Because they thought when they burned the branches of these blessed trees, it would produce kind of holy smoke, literally, uh, going through the chimney and would protect the house from lightning and from the storm. I remember this very, very strongly. And there were all kinds of traditions like that. I remember one tradition we had at the church church. And that's very common still in tyrol at the outside of churches there is a huge painting of saint christopher saint christopher carrying baby jesus on his shoulder through a river we were told that every morning when we see when we look at the fresco this painting the image of saint christopher the outside of the church that would mean that on that day we would not die so I remember as a child going to the village going to the school and the church was right next to the schoolhouse I would always make sure to go to the church and to look at the painting of Saint Christopher and that gave me a huge relief because I knew I'm not going to die on that day.
1: It is not just physical traits that children adopt from their parents, but also their passions, attitudes, and idiosyncrasies. The importance of these relationships is stamped on our own approaches to the world.
0: Uh, my father was first a customs official at the Italian-Austrian border. That also had, a, had an impact on me later. So his knowledge uh, of the nature, the mountains, the mountain crossings, of uh, the nearby southern Tyrol and Trentino region, already on the Italian side. Uh, and of course, also his knowledge uh, of the Italian language. Growing up with my father, my father was a very strong person, very educated. He loved reading, but, but he was some, someone who was troubled by his childhood. And he had a number of issues, which when I grew up, I had a hard time relating to him. and. Um, there was there was a big distance between myself and my father. I think that's the main reason why we moved around, because he was stationed in different places and later in the Austrian military. Also, he had less opportunities. I think this is one reason why he ended up eventually than in the military, because they provided him with housing, paycheck and clothes, a home, you know, a warm place. Uh, to sleep, there were not that many opportunities, I think, for him at that point in time. My parents got a divorce when I was still very young. Uh, The divorce of my parents, I think, um, affected me because I was the the youngest. And I think that's probably always true because when you are five, six years old or, or so, I didn't quite understand what is going on and uh, the grown-ups did not explain very much. Maybe I was also too little to be able to understand. I have a very close relationship with my mother to this very day. Actually, yeah, my mom is, uh, is a very caring, very loving person, uh, very kind, always wants the best for everyone involved. and. The expectation in, in those years probably was, you know, as a woman, for a woman, you, you don't get a higher education. I mean, that was the society. That, so that that was all very confusing to me as, as a child. And I was always very eager to get to the farmhouse where then she was waiting. She being there and taking me in her arms, it always kind of created a feeling of homecoming to be safe. And probably in those years, I, I needed that the most, because I, I didn't see my uh, siblings very much anymore because of the divorce situation and the age difference also, because I was the youngest. I think the mother as protecting as as a, as a safe space.
1: Moving out of one's childhood home can feel like a monumental transition, regardless of how near or far the next destination rests.
0: Later in my childhood we also spent time in a in a bigger town and then in a in a city uh, we would say Innsbruck in my later years and there of course the upbringing was very different the life was very different from growing up in a pretty uh, isolated and you know farmhouse that is far away from a village from the next village even and so it was a very mixed uh, childhood I started to reconnect with my father when I was in my early teenage years because he was taking me on trips during the summer very often, sometimes four weeks, hiking, being in the mountains, climbing in Tyrol, in South Tyrol, in the Tretino region. And something, that was something that I very much enjoyed, probably also enjoyed just spending time with my father and connecting with my father. And of course, it was an adventure. You're in the mountains. Uh, we, we didn't uh, normally didn't sleep in a, in a hotel, but in the nature. Making food on open fire, and that was camping, basically, but not uh, on an official camping ground, but kind of wild. And that was a huge adventure, and and that's something I will never forget. So those years, those adventures with my father, those experiences, and I think when I when I go back to these places in in certain valleys, certain mountains, certain regions of Tyrol and South Tyrol, this is this is also place I, I long for, I look for, because it brings back the, the happy childhood memories with my father. And those childhood memories were limited, uh, these positive childhood memories with my father. So I, I cherish them even more so.
1: As a son grows in years and maturity, the relationship with one's father may develop from the role of curious observer to one of deeply empathetic friend.
0: And that only changed in later years when we or he gave me his passion kind of hiking in the mountains and doing winter sports. But also he had a great interest for languages and history. We shared this passion for sure. So it was wonderful uh, then in later years to discover things with him, to, to drive to castles, old cities and of course the Tyrol region. So we had something in common and that brought me closer to my father. And and then when he got sick and very soon after he was diagnosed with cancer, passed away very quickly, I felt close to him. Although, you know, as I said, there were conflicts, especially when I was younger. It was not easy, but at the end, I think I, I was at peace with him.
1: The spontaneity of life and its tumultuousness can make us feel at times like we're lost. Traditions and familiar sensations can remind us of who we are, what we believe, and what we aspire to.
0: And I remember early on, I read everything I could get my hands on, and I developed also particularly interest in in medieval and renaissance history. The, The heydays of Tyrol was around 1500s, in the late Middle Ages, early modern period, if I'm not mistaken, Tyrol, South Tyrol, is the region in Europe with the most castles. And as a child, of course, that fascinated me, the story, the stories of castles. And I would uh, read books about the history of those families. And I wanted to go to every castle I could go to. Either I, I biked myself or I hiked myself to the castle or I begged someone with a car or my father or someone. To, to drive me to these castles. And in early, pretty early years, I had seen many, many, many castles in Tyrol and, and knew their history uh, very well and, and regional history in general. So that was fun for me and uh, still is. Sunday was obviously a special day that was also very much reflected in the food. So first of all, we would all go to church to mess as a family with the relatives it was expected that everyone from the family from the clan <laughs> shows up for church service on a sunday and if somebody was not in the group let's say my, my grandfather was not there or my uncle was not there or someone was not there from the family i remember priests would say what's what's going on you know is he sick uh, is she sick you know there must be a good reason why why he she is not coming And then we would come home and at home, Sunday was the day of meat. So there were sausages or there was a a schnitzel, like a Wiener schnitzel, for example. That was something very special. That was not something we would eat during the week at all. And also not on every Sunday, just sometimes, some Sundays a year, the grown-ups would have Alcohol, beer, or something, and that was also more like special. And we would get some of these sweet drinks, as soft drinks that similar to a Fanta or, or a Sprite or something like that. Aranciata or limonata. The dialect in, in the Kitzbühel area, they say it Grachal uh, because it had these bubbles probably feeling um, in the mouth. And that was very special because because all those things were basically, I'm using this word now on, on purpose, rationed. So there was a certain limited amount of those goodies available. They were more expensive. They were special and they were not given out lightly. So I, I couldn't ask during the week, Yo, I, I want to have a Sprite. Okay, because it was very special and this, as such, it should be treated and the resources of the family uh, uh, were limited. I think also because my grandparents and, and my mother too, my father too, I mean, they, they grew up during wartime and post time, and food was something very precious. They lived through times where they were hungry and always afraid of, you know, not having food on the table uh, or in their bellies. And, and I think that coined them very, very deeply. The generation of my parents and my grandparents they had a very different relationship to, to food. It was really cherished. It was really consciously distributed. I, I also remember like these rituals, some of these rituals are still in place, like general cultural things like uh, you start eating only once everyone has their food on their plate and their drink. When everyone is ready because their food is in front of them and their drink is in front of them, then you can start and the starting signal is Mahlzeit, Guten Appetit, Bon Appetit, and then everybody can start eating. But there were many, many of these rituals in place. And I also remember a, a certain hierarchy. So who gets the most to eat? It was not like that everyone got the same amount of food the people who who needed more energy, maybe because they worked more on the field, were expected to have more on the plate than, than others.
1: Culture shock frequently defines the feeling of being in a new and different country. This shock can be more jolting for those moving from a small town to a big city, even if the move is only a short distance away.
0: As far as I remember, the transition probably was not uh, easy at first because the life in a, in a city is very different. I was starting with the housing from a farmhouse into an apartment. It's much smaller. You don't have so much space to play. I mean, I had a, a huge area. I mean, a small valley, uh, half of a mountain, a forest, lakes, river, all kinds of things. They were my playground. And then you come to the city, <laughs> and your playground is the official playground where the kids play, tiny. And, and uh, you don't have it to yourself, of course, but share it with many other kids. The food changes, that the pace of life is very different. But at the same time, the nature is not so harsh anymore. The apartment is warm, all rooms are heated, not just one room uh, in the winter. Coming from the countryside, Dialect is very different. Could, of course, immediately tell that I was not from that city because of my dialect, but from a different part of Tyrol. They might not have welcomed me right away, you know, given that I'm an outsider at first, uh, not one of them, not from that place, but that probably went away pretty quickly. And as a kid, you adapt very quickly normally. And also the language, you probably, probably no time, you know, that I got rid of my. Uh, dialect from from that part of Tyrol and more melted into the mainstream of of that uh, small city. But at the same time, I never really 100% felt home in that uh, city. So when people sometimes say, well, you're from Innsbruck, that's true. But at the same time, I never 100% felt home there. In the city, there was more free time. I would hang out with friends, discovering adventures, going to to old buildings, checking out bunkers from the Second World War. I mean, the Tyrol of my childhood um, is not the Tyrol that we have uh, today. I often tell people, you can only make the decision to leave home, to go away from home. You cannot really ever go back because the place you left 10, 20, 30 years ago, the place that you have left uh, exists only in one location, in in one space only, and that's in your memory and nowhere else. So the idea of going back home for me uh, is an illusion, Um, but of course an illusion sometimes I still uh, hold on to like everyone else.
1: Despite the vast array of products available in American grocery stores, there are still some Tyrolean delicacies that elude their shelves.
0: Of course, Tyrolean uh, knödel, dumplings, speck knödel, but also cheese uh, knödel or a spinach knödel. Grestel, that's something with potatoes and, and uh, Tyrolean speck. Speck is basically smoked uh, prosciutto crudo. It's hard to, it's not exactly the same, but traditional very simple so most of it was very traditional tyrolean farm soup very basic but that really stuck with me that that's something that i try to recreate myself now um living in the united states this is sometimes difficult to get the ingredients surprising because among the Asian stores and even European stores uh, in many places in the U.S., some of the particular ingredients that you need for Tyrolean traditional dishes you can hardly find in the the U.S. And so for me, it's hard to recreate some of those uh, childhood Tyrolean dishes. You know, in many ways, as I said, especially growing up on the farm, it was a little bit not growing up in the in the 20th century, but more like in the 19th century in, in certain ways. And the, the food plan uh, of the week certainly reflected that. For example, every weekday we would get, so every Tuesday we will get the same thing. So every Tuesday we'll get a uh, Then every Wednesday we would, we, we would get the soup for lunch, always the same soup on Thursday. Something else on Friday, of course, no meat. There was not much variety. There was certainly no fast food. I, I did not know what that is in my childhood. It was all very, very traditional, very basic, very nourishing. It had to be because we worked a lot. So you needed energy uh, to, to keep going. And of course, children also worked on a farm as much as they could, that was normal.
1: True to the historical identity of the region, Gerald's Germanic Alpine culture was already imbued with the romanticism of northern Italy.
0: I started at the University of Innsbruck, but not for very long. And then I went to the University of Trento, Trient, um, and that's in northern Italy. That's maybe two and a half hours or so driving or or three hours away from Innsbruck. So I, I left the University of Innsbruck because I always wanted to study Italian. And I wanted to know more about regional history in the history of this part of Europe, Western Austria, Northern Italy. That was a big dream for me to study in Italy, which which I did. And Tyrolean history, one has to be able to read and speak Italian. That was very clear to me from the very beginning. So studying in Trento in Northern Italy, that was a logical next step. That was a, a no-brainer for me, actually.
1: After moving throughout his youth and learning to adapt in various environments, Gerald's biggest transition would take him out of the mountains and across the Atlantic.
0: Once I had the Masters going to New Orleans uh, for a year uh, as a graduate student, uh, that was just an opportunity, an opportunity that opened because of the partnership that the University of Innsbruck has with the University of New Orleans. You can go to the U.S., for a year, and uh, that would be fantastic. You know, you can improve your English and, and uh, open uh, your mind and learn new things and U.S. history.
1: Hollywood and the music industry paint dramatic caricatures of the United States. When newcomers arrive, they may be surprised to find that the country is far more multidimensional and massive than the film industry could ever depict.
0: As a small boy, I think I was very much coined, like many people in Central Europe, by Karl May uh, and, and his uh, books uh, about the so-called Wild West, the American West uh, and, and cowboys and, and uh, Native Americans, and character of Winnetou, chief, and, and his white German friend, basically immigrant friend, um, old Chatterhand. There are some photos of mine, uh, I think it's during Carnival, when we dressed up, and I then dressed up as a, as a cowboy. But at that time, of course, I had no idea that I would end up as a kind of old Chatterhand in the so-called Wild West in the United States many decades later. I never had particular ambitions or ideas or or desire to leave the the wider Tyrolean region or that part of Europe. That certainly coined me as well, because for the first time I was thrown into the, the big white world. And that was that was something new to me and uh, that, that really opened opened the gates that there is so much more out there. I mean, of course, I was always torn about the United States because at one hand, I saw the opportunities, so-called American dream. In other words, that you can reinvent yourself, that you can be what you want to be, that you should dream big which is something that traditionally, at least, I don't think we had in Europe. There is no equivalent to the American dream in Europe. So there is no European dream, so to speak. When I grew up, I think traditionally, it was more that people would say, well, you should stay where you belong. In other words, if your parents are from lower middle class, or farmers, or whatever, then that's what you should do as well. And if you have higher aspirations, if you want to achieve more, if you want to have a different career or maybe make a better life for yourself than your parents had, this is a kind of, this is sinful. I, I realized that. I, I thought the American dream has definitely something to it. There is always a price to pay and not everyone is willing to pay a, a high price for uh, for trying at least to fulfill their dreams.
1: Language is fundamental to our ability to self-express and connect with others. Adapting to a new style of communication can feel isolating early on, but rewarding as one improves.
0: But my English uh, you know, was not perfect at all. I, I was not always able to express myself and to say exactly what I wanted, and it was very frustrating. And then, of course, these cultural differences uh, Many many little things like uh, people would ask me, "So, um, how are you doing?" Or in the morning, "How are you doing?" And then I would stop, start talking to them, and tell them the next fifteen minutes how I'm doing, <laughs> until I realized that's not what it means. It's just another form of saying hello, and they don't expect you to to stop and you know tell them about uh, how you're feeling and about your 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 life or where you are right now and what's going on with you. And uh, that was very confusing it, uh, to me, For uh, just to give an example, because I thought, okay, if they don't want to know how I feel and how I'm doing, why are they asking me? And so I, I made this conclusion falsely, of course, like I guess many Europeans, that this is a sign of, of being superficial and not honest. The, the other thing that, that confused me is the friendliness Uh, For example, in restaurants, in the whole service uh, industry, go to a restaurant in New Orleans and the waitress or the waiter, everyone was very friendly to me and, and, and smiled and how you doing and this and that. I was very confused because that's not how waiters or waitresses are in Europe, especially in places like Vienna, for example, if the waiter or the waitress has a bad day, you can tell they're not forcing themselves to particularly friendly on a, on a day where, you know, they're not feeling it at all. I remember went to a restaurant, and um, I think it was with my sister who, who visited, and some European friends visiting also New Orleans, and, um, and then we asked for the cheque, and we paid. And at some point, uh, I think the waitress came back and said, you know, is, is something not okay? Was something not in order or everything okay? And we said, well, no, everything is okay. Everything was great, thank you. You know, no, no, everything was great. And then very soon it wasn't the waitress alone anymore, but I think it was the owner of the restaurant or and, and the chef too, the whole staff suddenly surrounded our table and they were asking if if there is a problem or something is wrong. What happened is that we basically didn't leave a tip. I was new to this country. I had no idea how important it is to leave a tip uh, for the staff, for the waitress, or the waiter, or the people working there because um, it's part of their payment and and that's very crucial. Where I come from in Europe, tip is, yeah, it's an option, it's optional and, and very often it's very small and sometimes it's not given at all and that's completely normal. But in this context of New Orleans, of course, it was very different and they thought probably that we were unhappy with them completely or or it was a sign of complaining or or have a huge complaint or something was terribly wrong. But we just didn't understand what's going on for at least five to 10 minutes and it was a very uncomfortable situation. But that's how cultural uh, differences are. I have, of course, many identities like all of us and we cannot be reduced to one identity. Uh, One important identity for me is uh, being a Tyrolean, being uh, someone who grew up in the mountains. And I'm happy in the mountains. I'm happy in Colorado. I'm happy uh, in the Alps or wherever, uh, as long as there are mountains. And in New Orleans, uh, there were not that many mountains. So that was something I was missing. I was missing also my friends. I mean, I was a university student in my mid-20s at the time. And you hang out with your friends, with your buddies a lot. So they were gone. I missed certain food also, absolutely. And I had a hard time to adapt to the climate, which uh, in New Orleans or in Louisiana is very different from from Central Europe. Uh, It was very hot in the summer and I had no experience with air conditioning. I think I never had encountered air conditioning in my life before. So not that I remember. And uh, that was very confusing to me, air conditioning. Outside, it's very hot, and then you go into a building, and then it's very cold in the building, so it's full of extremes. And and then at night also, when you have the air conditioning running, it makes some noise, and I was not used to the noise, so at least at the beginning, not a very good night's sleep. So I missed that, having a good night's sleep, being able to open the window at night and get the fresh air in. These kind of things, uh, I really had a hard time to get used to. Those early years growing up in a a farm in the Tyrolean mountains, I think Kurt coined me in many ways. So I still long for mountains and nature. And this is still a happy place for me, a place where I can find calm and quiet. I often say nature is a great healer. And so all the challenges in life that that come with with life can be better faced and, and dealt with. By, this, by these wonders. Uh, I mean, this is, this is the best way to say it, wonders. It's just the miracles, they're all miracles to me. The beautiful nature, all the creation. And I see it and I, I, I feel it and it deeply impacts me every single time. And I get a lot of energy and meaning in being in nature and surrounded by nature and part of nature.
1: Finding solace in nature can help rejuvenate one's spirit. This sensation is amplified when returning to the familiar nature from our youth, static in its positioning, yet committed to lasting growth.
0: I think about John Paul II, who loved to go hiking. He loved to be in the mountains, uh, in the mountains uh, in the Cadore region and and in Trentino, so not very similar to the Tyrolean Mountains and not far away from there. He said a number of things about his experiences and, and his views on nature and especially in the mountains, and I can absolutely relate to that. So in that sense, there is a almost religious uh, dimension to to that. I was uh, reading left and right. I wanted to understand the history of the United States. I read so much also about civil war, because that's, of course, in in American South, in a place like Louisiana, that's an important uh, part of history. How did they manage when they came to the United States? Did they keep, try to keep their identity, their language, their food? Did they try to assimilate? What does that mean, assimilating? To what extent? That was all uh, of great interest to me and, and still is. The diversity of food, uh, the, the space, the space in the United States. Different from Europe. Europe, in most places in Europe, there is not much space. Everything is tiny. The streets are narrow. There is no parking is a huge issue the apartments the houses are are small or in uh, most places hardly affordable because um, space is expensive and limited and here in the US suddenly there was a lot of space uh, and, and the distances are huge to get from one place to the next. In Europe, that's not so much the case. The, the dependency in the United States on the car, public transport, often not so good. The train system in many places almost not existing for passengers. Wide parts of Large parts of the U.S. have no passenger train services really anymore. Very different from the place I come from. And I was also eager to to go back home because I missed my friends and my family, the little things that I was used to, and, and certain things like the different climate in New Orleans, the heat, the humidity, especially in the summer, that was tough for me. I was not used to that kind of climate. And I didn't have a car, I couldn't afford a car. So I was outside a lot and walking a lot. And I I remember that was was very exhausting and uncomfortable.
1: In pursuit of stability and hope for the future, many find their way to the promises of education.
0: I'm not from a very well-off family, so I always had to work. To make a living and to finance my university education, and then at some point a friend of mine suggested I uh, could work as a as a high school teacher, a gymnasial professor as we call it in Central Europe, go to the gymnasium so that's German for for high school and uh, teach there on the side in order to make a make a living and to finance. My studies um, as a PhD student, so I started to be a high school teacher in in northern Italy, which uh, was a wonderful experience to me. I so I did really go very well, had a great a great relationship with the students, the parents, the my colleagues of Innsbruck, which uh, made me think that teaching is something I should I should definitely pursue because earlier I always thought you know me as a researcher wanting to research to know things to understand things to write about things but this teaching experience being a teacher um, and what I could also give as a teacher as well so for the future I thought yeah I mean if I'm in academia I could combine research and teaching and that would be wonderful. Once I had my PhD, I, I stopped uh, teaching um, at high school. I saw an opportunity again in the same region in northern Italy, and there was a position as an archivist in the state archives of Bolzano. Then started to work as an archivist and historian um, in this uh, in this northern Italian region. It didn't take long that. You know, another person, another mentor, a colleague um, uh, encouraged me to pursue a postdoc uh, habilitation. And the habilitation is important in many, many uh, university systems in Europe. If you want to become a professor, if you want to have an academic university career, then a PhD is not sufficient. You need a postdoc, you need a habilitation, that's a requirement. He basically told me, you know, that he clearly sees me in academia and that would be my place. And I was very much convinced because I thought, yeah, I can do research and teaching uh, as a university professor. So maybe I should pursue uh, in 2006, uh, while I was working as a historian at the State Archives in Northern Italy, I got a fellowship for my postdoc project about the escape of Nazi perpetrators from justice after 1945. It was a fellowship from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. And uh, my research reached a whole new level, became much more international, because it started out as a regional focus and now, you know, it was more like international in focus.
1: Studying history can be both rewarding and an existential struggle. Maya Angelou once said, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again.
0: So I always had an interest in history, uh, but it was more in medieval and renaissance history since childhood. Uh, History in the Holocaust, National Socialism, it was always there, I think. Because of my general interest in the past and explaining things, trying to understand where things are coming from. For, for a while, uh, my family lived near a former concentration camp, a durchgangslager, a transit camp, Innsbruck-Reichenau. And I remember as a child already, I had questions, what was there? And there are rumors and, you know, people talking, horrible things happened there. But nobody really seemed to know very much or wanted to know very much and certainly didn't, didn't tell us very much. And I think that's where my curiosity kind of started, because as a child, you can tell if the grown-ups are dishonest and, and not telling the truth, because there's probably something bad that they're not telling you or there's something they're hiding. And I think that's where I probably started to 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 realize I have to find it out myself. I have to answer the questions I ask myself, I have to be answered by myself because there, there's no one else or not many others.
1: At first an intimidating challenge, the United States beckoned Gerald to return as one of their own.
0: And while I was at the Holocaust Museum, I decided at the end of this time, at the end of the fellowship, that for Personal and professional reasons, I should uh, I should try to a career in the United States, and uh, that's what I did. Eventually, didn't happen overnight. I got first a visiting scholar position at Harvard University. And then I was a research professor, Schumpeter professor in Harvard for a year. And that was the time when my postdoc came out with Oxford University Press and won the National Jewish Book Award in the Holocaust category. That was very helpful to me because I was in Harvard as a a research professor, research fellow, went on the job market and applied for various schools in Canada and the United States and the University of Nebraska. I knew, of course, at the time already, had a very good reputation in Holocaust studies. That's my field. Working on the Holocaust, genocides, dictatorships, this, this is something very heavy and one has to be careful to protect his or her own uh, mental health and physical well-being and so for me doing sports hiking being out in nature is, is very helpful nature is a great healer and I also like Gardening a lot. I have a great interest, increasingly so, in food history. So I teach classes on food history, which brings together a number of things that I really like. I like history, obviously. I'm passionate about history. I like eating. I like cooking, and I also like to grow my own food. Also, work as a gardener, and I try to to learn more about that. Also, I take courses, for example, on on gardening, uh, which uh, which I very much enjoy. I mean, you have to keep in mind, I uh, immigrated to the United States relatively late in life, in my late 30s. So I already had an established life uh, in Europe, in Italy. Uh, and, and I think that that's something to keep in mind. It's, it's harder to start in, in, a, in a new place. When you're older, I recommend everyone who has this idea to move somewhere else and to immigrate maybe to the U.S. from Europe, that they should do it as young as possible because it's much easier to adapt and to get used to the place and language, culture, and so on and so on. In the last few years, I also noticed that I've become more and more American in, in many ways, unconsciously, most of it. Um, And I I stick with the example of the waiter or the waitress. Uh, Recently, when I was in in Europe, it really stood out to me that in so many places, not everywhere, of course, but in so many restaurants we went to, uh, the service was not good, as we would say in the U.S., and the waiters and the waitresses were unfriendly or absolutely not attentive and so on. It annoyed me. (laughs) So clearly the American in me was speaking. And then I realized, yeah, there, there are always more things that I'm used to, that I think it's normal, that I expect, that the way I see the world uh, is is now always more American uh, in, in a sense. When I have these moments, when I say, okay, I'm, I'm home here, I'm an American, this is my place, there are people who intentionally or unintentionally remind me that I don't really belong, at least in their opinion. And that sometimes uh, that sometimes uh, hurts. One of the things that come to mind is when people ask me, yeah, so, uh, so where are you from? And then I would say, well, I'm from Omaha. No, I mean, where are you really from? And then after long, yeah, I'm from Europe. Yeah, we in Europe, you know, like the European Union. We're in the European Union. We're like. And then finally say something, and then they ask me, so do you go home often? I just told them I'm home in the U.S. So you're telling me this is not really, you think it's not really my home. And that is that hurts me I, I, because I, I live outside Europe. I look towards Europe or on Europe from the outside, uh, not from the inside anymore. And from the outside, I see always more what Europeans have in common and not what divides them. That, that gets stronger every year. So many of the most convinced Europeans who believe in a European identity and maybe in the project of maybe one day United States of Europe to develop the European Union further in that direction. One of the most convinced Europeans are not in Europe, but are Europeans abroad because they look on Europe from the outside and see the, the things that we have in common as Europeans in Europe and not the things so much that divide us.
1: Most of life consists of day-to-day tasks and surprises. Occasionally, momentous events reshape our routines and provide a fresh world of experiences.
0: Well, I'm very busy with uh, research project, You know, edited volume about uh, fascism and the current right-wing trends in European and US society. I wrote a number of articles about uh, the increase uh, in Europe and the US in recent years, particularly the strong rise of anti-Semitism, and that keeps me busy. And of course, I'm working on a major book project about the Vatican and its responses after 1945 to uh, war crimes trials and denazification, basically the Vatican ideas or or visions of how to come to terms with uh, genocide, uh, war crimes, dictatorship, and and the war itself uh, after 1945, which is a very big topic. And then a number of other projects. I'm also doing consulting for films and also documentary films. A lot of activities. Teaching, of course, keeps me busy. I also think about uh, educating future teachers, especially about Holocaust. uh, What are the best practices for Holocaust education? I think I'm very proud that uh, I was able to turn my passion into a profession because there were, of course, uh, obstacles. I'm not from a academic family, and uh, th- there wasn't so much support. Not that my parents didn't want that, but might not have had the means or the connections or the thinking, the philosophy for uh, fostering or encouraging a uni- uh, academic career in history. And uh, there were, of course, economical problems. Uh, I had to earn. I was able to achieve this. Uh, despite many obstacles, and I'm I'm very proud of that. Uh, So I I kind of always followed my dream, which is so very un-European of me, but at the same time, I think this makes me very American. Uh, So I had a dream, I followed the dream, I, I did not put this dream or materialize this dream in Europe, but in the United States. And it all came together with a lot of luck and, of course, help of, of people, mentors, uh, many of them, and very grateful for those people in my life. Um, so I was uh, able to, to achieve that, and I'm, I'm pretty proud of that.
1: When the figurative fork in the road has been reached, fear not the path left untrodden, but embrace the road that has been chosen.
0: It would not have opened me to a wider world. My life. Uh, with America and the decision to leave Europe behind certainly enriched my life uh, in so many ways. Uh, I met people that opened the whole universe for me. At the end of the day, maybe, you know, on our last day, maybe, we will think back uh, of our lives. And uh, we probably think about the people we had in our life and the experiences we had in both areas. The wonderful people I met so far in my life and the experience I had in my life so far, I'm very rich and uh, very fortunate, very much so because I moved to the United States. I moved uh, away from Europe. I had both, and uh, that, that really enriched my, my life.
1: Thanks to Gerald J. Steinacher for his time. To learn more about Gerald's work, please visit our show notes. And if you would like to hear more stories like this one, please subscribe to If Passports Could Talk to get updates on future episodes.